Hey, Phil, it's Chris Reback. How are you? I'm well. How are you? Your, is your cell? Co- it sounds like you might be on a cell phone. Is your cell connection pretty good? Pretty it's stable? It's pretty good. I'm actually, you can, if you want, you can tell the audience. I'm sitting in the middle of Central Park. I didn't have any place to go, so it's very quiet here. I went under a tree. That's really clandestine of you. I mean, who's going to you know, <laughs> yeah. ever figure out? Wait, the guy sitting under the tree. I mean, that can't be Phil Maud. What would in he be suit. doing <laughs> in a suit, sitting under a tree, in talking a at a phone? Under a tree. Yes. If one of those horse-drawn carriages comes by and starts okay. making noise in front yeah. of you, you just ask me to pause. Right. And it's no problem. <laughs> All right. If I, I'm afraid a pigeon will crap on me, but I will not. <laughs> that we will not stop for. <laughs> I'm Chris Reback. This is Chris Reback's Conversations. This episode is sponsored by Political Wire, which my friend Tegan Goddard updates nonstop. But did you know he's got a membership program that offers readers exclusive analysis, a trending news aggregator, and no advertising on the site? And for my podcast listeners, Tegan's got a special friends-only offer, 20% off an annual subscription. Just go to politicalwire.com slash Chris for your discount. And now to our podcast. If you didn't recognize Philip Mudd the other day in Central Park under that tree, that's likely because you're used to seeing him on CNN behind a desk, where he serves as a counterterrorism analyst. It was a perfect week to have Phil on the podcast. Phil spent some 25 years at the highest levels of the CIA, reaching Deputy Director of the National Counterterrorism Center, and FBI, where he was hired to be its first National Security Branch Deputy Director by Robert Mueller. You may have heard of him. So when you have Mueller's congressional hearings nine days ago, followed by President Trump's tweets just five days later, announcing we're replacing our top intelligence chief with Republican House member who, as the Washington Post wrote, has alleged anti-Trump bias at the FBI and Mueller's team, directly accusing Mueller of violating, quote, every principle in the most sacred of traditions of prosecutors. When you have that and you want to know what in the world is the state of our national intelligence and law enforcement agencies, well, Phil Mudd is who you call. But truth be told, that timing was mostly luck. The real reason I wanted to talk with Mudd, he's written an important first-of-its-kind book called Black Sight, the CIA in the post-9-11 world. Mudd not only takes us inside the CIA, but inside one of its most hidden parts, the part known internally as the program. The secret black sites were the so-called enhanced interrogation techniques and where our national debates on torture, waterboarding, counterterrorism, and the deep responsibility to prevent another attack were born. How were those decisions made? How were they justified? What did CIA officers, deputy directors, directors, even people who interrogated prisoners think and feel about what they were doing? And how do they feel about it now? You'll want to hear this conversation. Before we begin, though, two items. First, make sure to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It offers my thoughts, show notes, extra questions with guests, access to free books, and more. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Second, please don't forget to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcast or wherever you listen. Several more of you did, thank you, and it makes a big difference. So, if you like these conversations, I'd appreciate it if you'd take a moment and, if you're so moved, leave a five-star review. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Philip Mudd. Phil, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate your time. 
Thanks for having me today. So you have written an extremely clear explanation of some very confusing times uh, in our country. But there's a major part of your story and the story that I can't figure out. And I think it really deserves to be the first question. I understand how an English major from the University of Virginia writes a book, at least three of them, in fact. What I can't figure out is how does a guy go from English major grad in 83 to a master's in English literature in 84 to the CIA in 1985? I mean, were were CIA leaders at that point like, you know what we desperately need right now if we really want to keep the world safe? English majors. We need people with great vocabularies. It's funny you said there was a great book a few decades decades ago called Accidental, a novel called Accidental Tourist. I feel like I was an accidental tourist. When I lecture, I do grade schools, high schools, colleges. Yeah. They always say, you know, how did you chart that, that trajectory when you're in college? And I said, well, what happened is my dad called me one day in 1984. I needed a job. I had a graduate degree in English literature. I could not find a teaching job. I wanted to teach high school kids. My dad said, the guy who sits next to me at the Orange Bowl, I'm from Miami, Florida, at Miami Dolphins football game, said he saw an ad in the Wall Street Journal for the CIA. I'm like, okay, I've seen movies with them. I was living in Washington, so I literally got in the car, my Chevy Chevette, drove around the beltway and went up to the security guard at the CIA entrance. It was a little lighter security then than it is today. And the guard said, what are you doing here? (laughs) And that was the beginning of it, just an accident. You just okay, and uh, 1984 was actually a great time to be a Miami Dolphins fan. I don't know that it's gotten uh, as as good since then, but that was uh, that was the Dan Marino heyday. Well, aside from their their uh, initially before the season now ranked or uh, estimated to be ranked 32 of 32 teams, I would say this is not a great time. But I'm sticking with. It. Okay, then, then you'll you'll stick with them. Fine, then you stick with them, and uh, we'll we'll stick with the book and and black sites and what a yeah. um, you know really an extraordinary book. Before let, let me put pause on the book though for one sec because there are current events um, and and the chance to get to to talk with you. Um, I want to ask you about some of the things that are going on now and 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 also just broadly, obviously in the times that we're living in, and and most specifically, I guess the last two and a half years. Um, What's the state of our national intelligence and federal law enforcement agencies, most specifically the CIA and, and the FBI? I mean, it, it, it began on President Trump's first full day in office, right? That was that, that uh, meeting um, at CIA in Langley where he stood in front of the memorial wall and um, then, you know, famously said uh, probably almost everybody in this room voted for me. Um, there's been the rejection of the daily briefings. There has been um, not infrequent mocking of the intelligence agencies and of um, the various leaders. Uh, James Comey comes to mind, uh, Dan Coates as well, uh, to a lesser extent. Um, there, of course, has been the treatment of Robert Mueller and now proposing um, Representative John Ratcliffe uh, to run the DNI, um, especially after his yelling at Mueller um, during uh, during the hearings, during the Mueller hearings, uh, what's the? I know we could have a you know three hour conversation on this, but what's going on with our national intelligence and federal law enforcement agencies? I'd give you two pictures. They're sort of almost diametrically opposed. I mean, when I talk to my friends, obviously they're frustrated. This is not a Republican or Democrat thing, but they're frustrated at being denigrated. You walk along the street. People come up to me every day and say, thank you for your service. And then the president goes out and mocks us. So there's a professional piece of this that says, you know, 
when you get paid less than all your friends who graduated to become lawyers and doctors yeah. and you get mocked for it, it's not a lot of fun. That said, if you're inside the business, and I was in both the, the agency and the FBI, if you look at what's happening around the world in terms of mission, North Korea, Iran, Russia, Saudi Arabia, if you look at what's happening in terms of global economic changes for those, for those analysts who do global economics and competitiveness, boy, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. The people I work with love to see what's going on around the world, so they're going to be motivated by mission. Even if they go home and kick the dog when they get mocked by the I don't mean kick the dog literally, when they get mocked by the president, it's pretty frustrating. Is there a point at which it becomes too much? I mean, I totally understand that, that being motivated so much by the mission. Do you worry about the institutions? Do you worry that there is a, a weakening, you know, a kind of a, a, a denigrating of the, the foundation and a weakening of the, the foundations? I mean, um, how, how much... In the end, it's, these are agencies that are filled by human beings. Um, how, how much can they take? I, that's, I've wondered that, and I don't have a great answer. I'll give you my personal answer, which is you can handle four years. Eight years is a long time. That's a third of a generation for a serving mm-hmm. officer who might stick around for 25 years. Eight years, not only of being denigrated, but the real thing I worry about is when the FBI walks in the room now, it's one of the best brands in America. Forget Coke and Levi's. The FBI is a great brand. People trust them. Yeah. They're guys in white suits and, and, and women in blue suits, and they walk in and they say, we're the FBI, and people say, okay, we want to know. If people start to say after six years or eight years of this, I don't really trust you, that's having a president denigrate you in a tweet is one thing. Having that slowly seep into culture is what I worry about. I think four years we can recover from. You start getting into eight years, then I'd start to worry. As someone like you who, who has spent your life not only around the agencies, but also around politicians, I mean, you're, you're no stranger to members of Congress and that sort of thing. Has that part surprised you? The, the lack of backup and, you know, not in all corners, but the piling on? I, I admit it has. Uh, the partisanship has not. When I used to testify, sometimes, you know, you'd get committees say, can you talk to the Democrats and not the Republicans? And the answer we had was no. You do that. We don't. We'll talk to both sides or nobody. That's always existed at some level. But the couple things that, that I, I guess there's nothing new on the planet, but that surprised me a bit are the anger. And the disrespect, I mean, some of this is personal. I served uh, as Robert Mueller's uh, intelligence advisor for years. Yeah. I saw him every day. He's one of the most decent and remarkable public servants I ever saw. He, he's also not, you know, he's had a long career and he didn't have maybe a great day the other day. The way he was treated is unacceptable. I'm not sure that would have happened 20 years ago. So to ask you about Mueller... How do you think he balances what I assume must be competing goals in his mind, um, directly following his mandate and the letter of that mandate as best as he interprets it, versus what I assume, and I don't know him, I've never met him, I certainly never worked with him, but what I assume is a concern about the country's direction towards destabilizing institutions, for example, you know, the, through obstruction charges, um, versus his concern about foreign attacks on our electoral process. How does he balance all that, do you believe, in his mind? I think it's pretty straightforward for him. When, when he speaks, he's one person in Washington, not only would I take him at his word, I just 
it's not that complicated. He's smart, but not nuanced. So in the report, you're looking at prosecution questions. He's, a, as he said, he was always a prosecutor, prosecutor. What's the case? In the case of obstruction, as he says, the legal guidance we have says the president can't be indicted. So therefore, I ran through this report, but we're not, we would never consider an indictment because that's not the legal process we have. That's, that's a congressional process. There is that second question you ask, which is not a prosecutorial question. It's the question, the risk America faces during elections. I think he was severely concerned. He's an understated guy, uh, really understated. He doesn't like adjectives. He doesn't like adverbs. Uh, he wore a white shirt for four and a half years. I was there every single day, not a single striker blue shirt ever. And for him to come out with the language he used on Russia, you got to understand Robert Mueller to say the man is concerned. That absolutely came through on on the Russia point. It came through less, and I'm I'm curious about this in in other aspects. And people have complained about his communication style, about the lack of adjectives and adverbs, about the double negatives, about the lack of willingness to add audio or video, you know, and I mean this figuratively to his written text. Do you, do you have insights on that as to why he insists on communicating in ways that maybe that that maybe don't break through, especially um, on issues or areas where he believes what he has to say is important? Yes, I, I think again, it's funny to me. It seems crystal clear because I spent so much time with him. But I've heard people say that, but many many people have said that to me, and my answer is. He became FBI director after being U.S. attorney in San Francisco. His view was, this is a case I have to review. Cases have to be presented uh, with facts. I presented facts clearly. People chose not to read them. I am not there to be Walter Cronkite. This is me speaking figuratively for Robert Mueller. I'm not there to be Walter Cronkite. I'm not there to be a salesperson. And I'm not there to explain to the, to the Congress what they should or shouldn't do. I'm there to explain why we do or do not prosecute a case. And by the way, he would say, I think that's what I was asked to do by the, by the attorney general, deputy, deputy attorney general. Why would I do something else? He's very clear in the way he thinks, in my experience. Phil, to close out this portion before we get to talk about your excellent book, following the Dan Coates move, um, the concerns about the state of our intelligence and law enforcement agencies, uh, are they overstated in your view, or do you find yourself agreeing with them? And, and here's kind of specifically what I mean. There was you know, just, just one tweet that I think sums up the concern side of the equation that I saw. Um, this one happened to be from uh, Rolf Moat Larson at, at Harvard's Kennedy School. Um, you may know he served over three years as I the, know him quite well. You know yes, him quite well. I know him very well. Okay, terrific. Smart guy. So, smart, okay, well, there you go. Um, uh, you know, former uh, Director of Intelligence, Counterintelligence at uh, Department of Energy and 23 years as a CIA intelligence officer. Um, after Trump said that he'd he had nominated Ratcliffe, um, uh, Moat Larson tweeted, "Trump is consolidating his personal control over the intelligence community between loyalists Barr and Radcliffe and pliant CIA and FBI directors. Trump is close to neutralizing intelligence and law enforcement as spoilers in his bid to amass." unprecedented executive power. So there's a lot there. It's pretty strong on the concern side. And I think it did a fairly good job of, of, of bringing together the, the range of concerns that folks in that camp feel. 
Um, where are you? Um, is that overstated? What's your state of concern? I wouldn't go that far. First of all, I wouldn't call the FBI and CIA directors compliant. Uh, their job is not to talk to the American people. Their job is to run intelligence and law enforcement organizations. So we don't see them that, that much. I would agree that there should be serious questions about the nomination. Look, the question isn't whether the man is, has a bunch of experience. You can learn. The question is whether in public or private for us, someone who's been so ardent in his support of the president is going to look the president in the eye and reflect what the intel guys say. Mr. President, you're wrong on North Korea. You're wrong on Iran. You're wrong on Russian interference. You're wrong on Saudi Arabia. Is somebody who has this track record of this nominee for being in the president's house going to have that courage? I don't worry about the FBI and CIA directors. This one, I'd have some serious questions. Thank you for that. And, and, and also, I mean, your analysis sure. regularly on, on those issues, you know, um, I think has been um, really helpful and really um, enlightening. I want to turn now to another case that has been presented with facts, um, and that's your book, Black Sight, um, uh, the CIA in the post 9-11 world. Why did you write it? And how does one interview several dozen CIA officers about the program, including former directors and deputy directors, even people who interrogated prisoners at black sites? Um, how did you motivate them to speak? Well, first on the writing in part, there's a personal piece, which is really simple. You mentioned earlier, I was an English major and my mom taught me to love to write. I love writing. And I was running one day and I realized there's a story that that A, hasn't been told. B is important, I think, and C will not be told unless an insider tries to tell it. And I sat there and thought, I'm not going to write the definitive 800-page history on the program, the interrogation program, but I can talk to a bunch of people and have Americans relive it in a way that will die if I don't tell that story. Mm. So that, that's why I wrote it. I thought this, this is compelling and interesting, and I think it's a tiny sliver of history, but it's a sliver. On the issue of um, questions, I have had maybe one or two people turn me down, but with maybe one or two exceptions, everybody in that book, including the directors I spoke with, were people I not only knew, but knew quite well. I mean, saw them sometimes once a day, sometimes multiple times a day. I worked for some of them. The book is purposely third person because I thought going between first and third person would be really awkward, but I knew a lot of these people. I witnessed or was aware of a lot of what's in the book. And so when I called them and said, look, you're going to be anonymous. I'm not here to burn you. I'm not here to defend the agency, though. It's going to be a direct conversation. Honestly, they said fine. My assumption is they must have really been down with the mission of getting the facts on the record, of getting that story told um, in a in a clear, here's how it happened way for, you know, for for better and worse. And you, you've said, um, you know, folks will come away from reading this and they may be, you know, well, you didn't say this, but but I assume that you would agree. They might be angrier than they were before. So that, oh, yes, you, yes, you, I knew that. Yeah. Your your mission it was to is to really get down almost a play by play and bring people back to what was going on and how those decisions were made and what the tensions were. And I assume that the folks that you talked to said, "Yeah, we got to get that down." Uh, that's not true. Believe it. That makes oh. perfectly perfect sense logically. Yeah. There's a few categories. I think some people, some of the key players, and again, some are quite good friends, I think would say, I'm not sure they'd be passionate about getting this story down, but they would say, this is, this is important to tell. 
And they were, I told them, look, it's not going to, I'm going to expose some warts here. As you know, having read the book, I think some people will think it's a defense. It's not. Some of them were willing to give the interviews because I knew them well. And I think they were reluctant to say, I'm, I'm just not doing it. I'm, and then I'd say, you know, I just talked to Mary, Joe and John. Mm. So I'm not sure they were excited about this, either doing the research or writing the book, but they did it as I think some of them probably did it as a courtesy. Got it. Okay, well, good. So it pays off that you were such a nice guy for all those years. Never offended anybody, right? <laughs> Don't offend anybody. Washington is smaller than it looks. That's why I tell college students. Yeah. You kick somebody off when you're 24, you'll find them again when you're 50. I, I don't doubt it. I don't doubt it. So, so let's go through, um, uh, you know, how things happened and what you have in the book. One of the things that struck me, to understand how the CIA was positioned to respond to 9-11, even, I think, to understand how the CIA reacted and the building of the program, um, it's clear from your book that one must first understand what happened to the CIA after the Soviet Union and Berlin Wall fell. You, you were there. Do you, is that true? Do you, is that important to understand? And, and what, what happened then? Sure. If you look at the 90s, you know, that people of my generation, maybe half a generation after, remember the thing called the peace dividend. The Soviet Union is gone. The main purpose of the U.S. national security infrastructure, not just the CIA, but the military, et cetera, has disappeared. Why don't we take some money away? Which is understandable. I don't, not bitter anything, but that has a clear impact on things like how do you train people? And then you have a, a mission impact. What's our mission in life? We're not chasing the Soviets anymore. We're chasing, as the, the book says, we're chasing a bunch of lesser targets. So yeah, I, I would say there was a decline in the 90s, and that decline is explained by the decline of the Soviet Union. And we just had less money and fewer people and less mission. Where were you on 9-11? I was at the executive office building of the White House, which is the looks like a wedding cake right next to the uh, West Wing where the, where the Oval Office is. And I, like every good federal employee, was out for a cup of coffee. I came back. And somebody said a plane went into a building in New York. And I found out it's a Cessna, you know, that some trainee made a mistake. And then the second plane hit. I was watching. Hmm. And uh, we thought there was a plane headed for the White House compound. That was the, that was the Pennsylvania plane that actually hit it for Congress. But we evacuated immediately, and I could not get back into the building that day. It was, it was like around the White House was just you couldn't have made it up on a movie set. Everything from SWAT people to people swarming around in bars watching TVs. We thought that the, that the State Department had been hit. There were uh, when I went across the river, there was smoke coming out of the Pentagon. It was just horrific. Now, as you just very briefly noted, this was at a at a small period of your um, history in your career where you were um, working at the White House or for the White House. Yeah, I guess I think you had been, correct, yes. been given a, a you know sent over there and and. In your book, you talk about, though, how within the counterterrorism, um, originally counterterrorist center and within those groups, they were they were worried. They were they knew they had a sense that something was was afoot, didn't know when, didn't know how necessarily. But the the um, tension and the worry was increasing. Did you have any word of that or any sense of that? I mean, you were working in a different area at that time. Did anyone, had anyone kind of given you any type of sense of, gosh, I really wish that, you know, th you know, people were focusing on this a little bit more uh, within the executive, you know, office because, uh, you know, there, there's stuff going on and we're hearing things and, and you know, we're, we're pretty concerned. Uh, the easy answer to that is no, for a couple of reasons. I was not working on terrorism at the White House. I was working on Middle East issues, but the, uh, the more interesting part of this is 
the CI is a pretty insular organization. Um, today, I have very little, almost zero contact there, including with public affairs. I do CNN for a living. I don't really talk to CI public affairs. And so even if you move as close as the, uh, the White House, and I was on loan from the CIA, still getting a CIA paycheck, I don't remember having a heck of a lot of contact with the agency, except, you know, going out for drinks with my friends. Once you leave that place, you, you, you could stay in touch with friends, but it is, it's a closed society. You then describe how the CIA's overall mission after 9-11 shifted from um, supporting warfighters from the U.S. military, supporting them with information, to acting as both the information arm and the action arm, supplying information to CIA operatives who then hunted down terrorists. How purposeful and mindful was that shift, or did you feel like it occurred more by a traveling down a slippery slope? And then how, how significant is that type of a shift in the mission for someplace like the CIA? I cannot overestimate the significance of that kind of shift. It's the difference between supplying the president with information that might lead him to say, we need to get the Pentagon to build a different missile system and supplying information where the president then says to you, when are you going to take out that cell? It, it's a, it's a, it's, it, it's a fundamental change in mission. Uh, in terms of the, the way the CIA dealt with it, I think some of it, they, it was a, was a steady maturation. You know, they knew how to collect intelligence on terrorists. Now you just turned everything you had along with every global partner around the planet onto one thing. Forget about the Chinese, forget about the Russians, forget about the Iranians. Every dime we have is going against these guys in, in Afghanistan and in Pakistan and elsewhere. Parts of it, and the part I, I wrote about in particular, that were so new that we weren't experienced with them, including the detention program, that was much more difficult. I think it initially a little ad hoc. The book talks about the early rough stages of the program, and they were rough. I think most of the people I spoke with would acknowledge that. So that stuff that was entirely new, not, that's not really an intelligence mission. It's not collecting intelligence and reporting. It's holding people in prisons overseas and interrogating. It was yeah. like entirely different for us. I want to ask you about how the prisons then developed off of that, moving from the sand pit and then on to cat's eye and the actual prisons. But in reading your book and thinking about it and trying to think about the lessons that I believed you were wanting us to all think about, that initial shift of the mission of the CIA, to me, that that felt pivotal. And to me, it felt like a missed opportunity. And, and I'm curious about the communication of that shift. And that gets to my, my interpretation of it as a missed opportunity. Was that shift communicated clearly within the CIA? And then do you feel it was communicated clearly enough to the public, I, of course, feel like it wasn't necessarily communicated clearly enough. And, I, and, and in reading your book and thinking about the lessons to take away, I couldn't help but think that, man, if, if that portion of it had been communicated just a little bit more clearly at the start, maybe the, the public reaction to various um, activities would have transpired differently. But, but what's your take about the, the communication of, the, of, of that shift? I think internally – the, the mission director was pretty clear. This will not happen again. And one of the one of the ways we thought about it frequently is if there were another event and you said we should have done this yesterday, mm. do it today. Um, so internally, the mission focus was 
incredible. And of course, that's partly what led to the what now, even just it's not that long later, 17 years later, seems remarkable. The, per, the development of interrogation program, the mission directive was so clear and so compelling in terms of communicating outward. I think as a former CIA officer, our view would be a our job is not to talk to 330 million Americans. It is to talk to the Congress. And I think the Congress had a pretty good understanding of what we were up to. Maybe not everything in the interrogation program, but in terms of the shift to an action-oriented organization, I, mean, I, I personally talked to them dozens of times. That's both to the House and the Senate. Yeah. How did we move from rendition to the program? Uh, how was the program born? Was it with the salt pit? Part of it was the salt pit was a, a facility for the detention of high-end Al Qaeda prisoners in Afghanistan. Part of it was there was a simple proposition, and that was we're concerned about what we call the second wave, the next wave of hijackers after uh, 9/11. We are also concerned about WMD in the second wave, particularly related to anthrax. When the first prisoner went down, that was Abu Beta in the spring of 2002. A question started cropping up in the spring and into the summer. He's not speaking. He knows what we need to know. We cannot let nearly 3,000 people die again. What do we do? And that simple explanation, I think, is, is, can capture for you how we got to the program. The answer was, we're going to have to make them speak. You give great detail and color around the process of determining where to build a prison, how to build a prison, where could it go? An African island or an island, I guess this was proposed by uh, a CIA person in Africa, an island surrounded by crocodiles or maybe in Asia. Describe the process of how that that was all determined, how how to build prisons within uh, the CIA. That's right. And what I wanted to do in giving some of those anecdotal examples was to give the reader a sense of one of the basic themes of the book is how intense and fast-moving the times were, how unusual this was. For somebody who's 20 years old today, and doesn't. I wanted to force them to step back in time. And, and I think those examples, like some of the suggestions for sites, give people an idea of how it was so odd, so fast. What are we going to do? Maybe an African island, maybe a place here. Maybe it, we, it was just creating a program on the fly with no time to do it in an organization that did not have experience with a program like that. I was surprised. One of the things you wrote that was that sleep deprivations were, were form, far more significant and common than waterboarding. Um, explain that to me, especially in the context that you write that while most, most of the people you spoke with wouldn't revisit their decisions to support or manage the interrogation program, they would reconsider using waterboarding as a technique. Yes. That's the one technique that several of the people I spoke with said in retrospect. I mean, remember, we had more than 100 people go through the program. Three of them were waterboarded. So it's dominated the national conversation. It was not common, obviously, when you have less than 3% of the prison population undergoing. But I understand the, the, the national focus on it. I think a lot of people looking back said this, became, this was such an aggressive technique, and it became so toxic in the national conversation about the program that – they're not saying they wouldn't have done the program. They're saying if they lived it again, maybe you skip the one. And yet sleep deprivation is a highly, I was going to say highly effective. And, and yeah, of course, but that gives off the wrong sense. Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It means it mean, it's, it's, people respond, respond to it. Yeah, yeah. It's not the most, you know, it doesn't have the kind of visual that waterboarding has. People don't talk about it. 
I'm not suggesting we return to it, but I, I would tell you that what, the idea was that prisoners will start to say, I need a lifeline out of a life that's incredibly uncomfortable. One of the ways it was incredibly uncomfortable is they were incredibly tired because we messed around with time with them. Told them they got six hours of sleep, they actually got two. Mm. So, um, you know, again, the book is not there to defend what we did, but it's there to explain to the reader. Sleep deprivation seems sort of not that interesting compared to what people have talked about in the national debate about interrogation techniques, but it's very effective. Only, by the way, if you know something about the prisoner. You have to understand when the prisoner is lying to go down this path. That People always say, well, they lie. I'm like, of course they do. When they lie, they give you a signal. Phil, you write extensively as well about the legal considerations, and I want to ask you about those. In the U.S. and within the CIA around enhanced interrogation, um, how did the lawyers describe that process to you? And given how the program turned out, um, was that legal process in their view and perhaps in your view as well um, executed properly? The legal process was, was critical, maybe as critical in this intelligence operation as in any we've ever had at the CIA. Mm. The point was not only that we want to make sure we comply with the Constitution and the law. Obviously, despite popular perception, we do. The point was the leadership of the agency knew that at some point this would be under scrutiny. And that there would be questions, and unless the legal underpinnings were clear, not only would the leadership be in trouble, but you have a responsibility in leadership to protect your people, that the people would be in trouble. In terms of the process, I think the internal process of going to Department of Justice repeatedly worked pretty well. The outlying question is whether we should have been more systematic and broader in our engagement with the Congress. The White House said because it's a leak, you can only talk to a few members of Congress. In retrospect, I think that was a mistake. The other mistake we made is such a Washington mistake. We didn't write down every interaction with Congress. And I'm not particularly encouraged about the level of courage I saw from the Congress after all this stuff started to go ugly. Early on, they were fine. And afterwards, there was a little bit of, uh, we're not sure we knew everything. Mm. Boy, really? We should have written more stuff down. More contemporaneous memos. Yes, yes. And, you know, this is exactly what happened. This is who was there. And this is, I would go to the level of saying this is what each individual senator or congressman said. We didn't do that every time. And I think there was just this sentiment that America is together. And boy, did that fall apart fast. So let's jump to the end of your book and then as well, um, maybe looking forward just a little bit. Um, at the end, you directly address the ethics and reflections. Um, and I've got to say, when I picked up the book, that was where my brain immediately went to. You know, I, I, I wanted to really kind of understand, boy, oh boy, how, how do people think about, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. With, with a little bit of, you know, history now, the, the ethics and, and how do they reflect on that? Um, you know, a lot of the questions, obviously, around the morality, the effectiveness, um, and the long-term benefits and cost uh, trade-offs. Where do you come out? Um, was it effective? How do you work through the morality? Um, how, and how do you consider the long-term benefits um, versus cost trade-offs? Let me take those three questions individual. I'm going to make the answer simple, although they're not. I mean, the book, obviously, that chapter has a lot of subtlety. I thought about it a lot. I talked to a lot of people. But in the interest of time, you know, please don't judge me for being simplistic. We don't have an hour and a half to talk about it. So, so let me try to cut off some of the edges. 
on the effectiveness part, yes, with some caveats. For example, if you don't know the background of a terrorist, you can't corner them when they lie. So you cannot talk to terrorists with these methods unless you know a heck of a lot about them because they're just going to lie their way out of it and you won't have a way to check them. So, yeah, it can be effective. And people, you know, they don't like to be under duress. Uh, the second on is sort of ethics and morality. I think looking back and, and the real message of the book is please don't judge us without trying to remember the intense emotion, the intensity of the time. At that moment in time, anticipating that there might be an anthrax attack or a second 9-11 attack in the United States, I think reliving it, I can understand why we did it. And I'm not sure I would go back and say we were wrong in the time. Moving forward, I cannot imagine an intelligence leader in 2019 saying, let's try that again. Now, people will misinterpret that to mean you regret what you did. No, the answer is we've had the luxury of time. We've actually battered the adversary. We've had a conversation or the Congress has had a conversation with us and the American people. And in the, in, the, in the tawdry piece of this, we know if we ever did it again, that people once again would say, hey, um, we know that was OK 10 years ago, but now we're going to check on whether you should be in jail. Mm. We know that people would moonwalk. So all that stuff taken into account. I know people talk about the president, talk about waterboarding. I, it's hard for me to imagine that era happening again. And those five judgments, legal, you, you outline kind of the five questions that, that one could yeah, ask yeah. oneself. Um, you know, is it legal? Is there a local version of legal, meaning is it legal within the, your organization? Um, do, yeah. Would you like to see it on the front page of the newspaper? Um, for, what would your mom say or, you know, whoever gives you kind of moral clarity? Um, yeah. And does yeah. it pass your own personal smell test? Uh, yeah. It, that, those judgments, that kind of, that, that wrapped it up. I mean, it's a nice way to look at, just about anything, those five judgments. And they're painful. I think a lot of us would say, my mom's not with us anymore. I'm not sure she was gone by this time. She might look at me and say, son, what were you thinking? Mm. I don't think the answers, I think the answers to the first two are pretty clear. People now say what we did was torture. Well, I'm sorry, but we went to the Department of Justice repeatedly. And then people say, well, you just took their advice. What do we, would you prefer that the CIA create its own interpretation of what the, who were we supposed to ask? The questions as you go down to, to more personal questions of what would your mom say? I mean, I think these apply to any part of life, whether it's your personal relationships or whether it's business. Those, I think a lot of us would say, those aren't easy. It's not a just check the box. Yeah, mom would have said fine. I'm not sure she would have. You know, we often hear, and I'm wondering how you, if you came across this in your conversations, we often hear about the terrible PTSD suffered by members of our military. You talk to a whole heck of a lot of folks. Um, what about the CIA folks, particularly those who participated in the program? What are their lives like now? These are, you know, I'm reflecting on people who I've known for years. Um, I, I think they're pretty well balanced. I think many of them, as the book says, would say, you know, we, we were dealt a pair of twos and mm. we won. Um, I realize people don't like it, but I think many of them would say we tried our best with a really bad hand. I don't think they're particularly apologetic. I don't sense they reflect. I mean, I like to tell people, you realize the CIA people I work with, they're your neighbors. People pretend like we're some Hollywood movie. We're your neighbors who were just dealing with different circumstances and difficult choices. They knew it was momentous. I knew it was momentous. But if you, if you think people are sitting around, you know, losing sleep, I did not get that sense. 
that's not to say they don't reflect and say this was a this was momentous. I think all of them would say that. And some of them, frankly, would say we shouldn't have done it. Not many. Which brings me really to, you know, my last question. I think this is something you said. I think this came from the beginning of the book. I forget whether it came from the beginning or, or the end. But, but you called this a, quote, hard and thankfully closed chapter for America. Is it closed? I think it is. I, I, there would be some debate. Uh, about this. I think the American people, especially those who don't like what we did, interestingly, are probably more likely to say they think this door would open again. As someone who was there, I tell them, boy, after what all of us have gone through in the past 10, 15 years, when people said, you're a bunch of torturers who don't reflect American values, to have a CIA director at some point in the future say, hey, we'd like to go down that path again, regardless of whether a president says yes or no. I I think many of us would counsel any CIA director. It's not a question of whether this is effective, and it's not a question about the ethics and morals. You have to protect your people. Those who are telling you in government do this, they're going to back away. I'm not sure. I think this door is closed. Phil, thank you. Thank you for your time, and uh, thanks for contributing to our understanding of what happened. Thank you. That was my conversation with Philip Mudd. My thanks again to Phil for joining and you for listening. Quick reminders, sign up for my newsletter at chrisreback.com. And if you liked this conversation, please give it the five-star ratings on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. That's all for today. I'll talk with you soon.